And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com. We have podcasts, too. This is what's called a broadcast podcast, or I suppose you could use the acronym BP. Maybe I'll create that. I never cared much for people referring to uh, archived audio on the Internet as a podcast because it Never made any sense to me. But uh, then again, I've been in radio for 40 years, so there you go. I've been working too close to transmitters, and the brain is, uh, is, has been affected by those very close radio waves. Needless to say, it's a BP, a broadcast podcast. We certainly hope that you will go to SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, see Blueberry, uh, and a bunch of other places folks are linking us to and, and re uh, re posting and all that good stuff and we thank you for that we also have a link to our guests website we'll be giving that to you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process you can continue to move forward grow change transform your life and the lives of the people around you just by virtue of changing your life you did you know that you can change other people not consciously only through the process of transforming your life and we're going to talk about that in a moment also want to remind you that if you uh, want to go to uh, our homepage or our missions page and you'd like to support us financially, we would be grateful for that. Uh, PayPal and Patreon accounts are available. I use those because uh, it provides a certain level of security as well as uh, anonymity. I do not mention who has supported the program, but I am grateful to all who have in the last year and a half, almost two years. And uh, it's just it's been wonderful. And I I. I'm just I can't thank you enough, especially for those who then repost the interviews so people can get this information. Our program today is going to deal with something that has become part of our sort of our vernacular. I never thought of this in this context until I am guessing probably maybe a year or so ago when this word used to be used. It used to be used when you talked about history, when you talked about particular communities and their, we'll call them proclivities, uh, the ways in which they did things, the way in which they thought, uh, believed, etc., etc. And now you have this word being used in the context of just about everything. I never thought of it in the terms of workplace, uh, but there you go. And that word is culture. But we have an interesting, uh, an interesting situation where it's we're, we're in the midst of, uh, w- at least of, from our guest's perspective, we're in the midst of a culture shock. And uh, we are going to talk about that with our special guest who is on the uh, on the line via Skype today, Joanna Dodd-Massey. Thank you so much. Uh, do I refer to you as doctor with a Ph.D.? Dr. Massey, yes, and actually some friends call me Dr. J, but I hear that was taken already. Yeah, I'm sorry to say it has been, but if you want to be referred to as Dr. J, I'll be more than happy. You're going to have to grow another foot and a half to two feet, I think. Yeah, and get my skills up for sure in sports. Um, you can call me Joanna, though. Well, Joanna, it's it's interesting how this word culture has now been... Um, incorporated into the conversation when we talk about any group of people gathering in any situation. Uh, and, and actually, maybe I should rephrase that uh, in a particular setting. For example, 
uh, our workplace. Now it's referred to as a workplace culture. You know, there's a, you have a certain culture in the workplace, or maybe you have a certain culture in your home. Uh, I've even heard it in the reverse, how uh, these people, they're, they're destroying our culture in a negative context. And maybe that's uh, part of that culture shock. But at the same time, things are constantly changing. And obviously with the coronavirus, the COVID-19, I don't even know what to call it anymore because there are two or three or four. Some people call it the Chinese virus. And I'm just thinking, eh, let's not go there. But we've we've got we've had, I guess, for centuries, as far as humanity is concerned, we have had a uh, a culture clash, you know, uh, between tribes. OK, uh, who are, I guess, I think the first thought that comes to me is the Vikings. And I, I've, I watched this uh, that one uh, series called Vikings on, uh, I think, the History Channel or maybe it was uh, National Geographic. And if the portrayals are correct, these people thought like there was no tomorrow, like they had nothing. They had nothing to gain, nothing to lose. They were going to fight until they died. And that was what made them so fierce and destroying other cultures. We had the Spanish Inquisition. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, you're going to convert or you're going to die. Um, We've had these kinds of things down through the centuries. Is that is that a, a fair starting point as far as understanding uh, this whole aspect of uh, of this this issue with cultures and and the dynamics therein? I think that you know we've always had culture, right? You talk about the culture of a city, the culture of a, a nation, a culture of a uh, of a corporation. I've spent thirty years working in communications executive um, in, in with C-level, you know, public uh, public companies. And so we often talked about corporate culture. Now, in the 1980s and the 90s, it was like, God, that's a dysfunctional corporate culture, right? You know, today we're much more focused on making it a more positive cor- corporate culture because we have two younger generations that are demanding it. But I think that when you're talking about culture to your question, it really has to do with... Um, psychographics of a population. Whoa, 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 right? whoa, whoa. Hold, popul- hold Wait a minute. Psychographics? So, you know, it's interesting you stopped me there because I usually actually stop myself. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> psychographics means attitudes, opinions, lifestyles, and interests, right? So, you're, you know, if you live in a certain city, you're going to, during a certain era, let's say the 19th, since I said the 80s earlier, let's go with the 1980s, you're going to have certain attitudes and opinions and a type of lifestyle in New York City in 1980 that is very different from the lifestyle you have in 1980 in, say, um, Atlanta, Georgia, or Paris, France, or um, Beijing, China, right? So the people who are in that, that is a population who has specific experience, a shared experience that shapes their attitudes, their opinions, their lifestyles, and their interests. You have that same situation happening in the workplace, right? You can, and you can have that same situation at schools. Um, so yeah, the, the culture thing, I mean, perhaps it is a situation where we are just assigning that word to these more broader terms. But if you think about it, it does fit. Okay. So this is anywhere where, if I may, 
<laughs> I'm going to quote this passage, where two or more are gathered, <laughs> and I take that out of context, you have a culture. Yes, okay. actually. You do, because you can have the culture of an organization, of a nonprofit, of a, of a you know, of a, um, of a self-help group. You mentioned, um, what was it, corporate dysfunction? Yes. Yeah. Um, we, and, and this is an observation, okay? This is not a criticism. There's a big difference, folks, between a criticism and an observation. My observation is that we have a governmental dysfunction that isn't, changing and unfortunately it permeates our our corporations and our businesses in 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 one way or another and i'm wondering how you and the work that you do uh help corporations i don't know maybe you deal with governmental bodies from time to time maybe on a smaller level i'm the federal government is a little large to take on uh to fix this dysfunction well, unless you've been asked, you know, to <laughs> to come in and say, uh, we have a problem over here in the Defense Department. Uh, we don't know how to build missiles because our people are idiots. I mean, it's <laughs> um, it's one of those things where uh, my uh, my first wife worked for the VA in Phoenix, Arizona. She was a transcriptionist and she knew a lot about computers. But she learned this. There were three ways of doing things at the VA. And apparently it's probably still the case today. There's the right way. There's the wrong way. And then there's the VA way. Which was also the wrong way. How do you go into a culture setting and begin the process of transforming that culture into one that is um, productive, um, interdependent, and people realize that, hey, we have to count on one another, where people have each other's backs, so to speak, you know, um, but that, that it's, it's a place you want to be. And I've been in one or two radio stations where... Uh, Boy, it was it was utterly dysfunctional. And then I've been in a couple of stations where I didn't want to go home. It was a great place to be. So talk, talk to us about the beginning process that you go through when uh, when that comes along. Actually, I want to I will. I want to address something you said earlier on when you started the question, which is you, you made a really good point. And I've spent my career in business, but I have a Ph.D. in psychology. And you made the distinction of um, a culture or a, a problem that needs that wants to be addressed. Like you have to want the number one rule, not the number one rule, but one of the rules in psychology is you actually have the person has to think they have a problem in order for you to need to fix it, right? Mm. The corporation needs to believe there's a problem in order for someone to be able to come in and, and, and change. Same thing with the government, right? Mm -hmm. They have to think that there's something wrong with the way it's going in order for it to come in. And in which point, you know, yes, there, I, I work, I've worked at very large companies uh, in-house and, and I've worked with um, smaller companies and even startups. Um, and there are two different ways to do it. And it really depends on where the need is. Where's the problem? 
right? Is it at a divisional level? Can you go in and start with one division and then work through the company division at a time? Or is it at an overall general level? Do you start at the corporate level and, and bring it down like a, py a pyramid? But the way, the way that I go in, I look at it twofold. It really depends on the problem. And the first thing is to go in and find out what the problem is. You know, and I never make an assumption that I know what the problem is. Uh, my company, I, I have a consulting firm and and I have a, a survey that we can do is that we can measure corporate culture for, for a company. Like, are people happy? And because I have the psychology background and I, and I look at things through a generational lens, I, I like to, to take an, a look at what are, you know, we have everything from 18 to 80 in the workforce now, you know, five generations. We have never had that before. People are living longer, they're living healthier, and they're not they're not retiring at the same levels that they used to, right? So we have massive span of ages, and the way an 80-year-old thinks and the way an 18-year-old thinks is vastly different, even a 22-year-old and a 72-year-old. Like, it's just very different. So we have a lot of miscommunications and misunderstandings. So I like to look at where are the problems coming in from what age range because of that psychographic thing we were talking about, right? If you grew up in the 40s and 50s, you have a very different view of the world than somebody who grew up in the 80s and 90s versus someone who grew up in the 2000s. So I like to see where the problems are based on their, their generations because it's not a one-size-fits-all fit all fix. You know, some people are going to need different things um, adjusted. But really, for me, as a communications executive, it is about communications. It's about being transparent and truthful. It's about asking questions and actually listening to the employees and what they have to say, not just taking the feedback and going, all right, I'm changing some of that, but not all of it. And the most important, one of the more important things I have to say is actually asking the question. I know a situation where there was a company um, who... They made all these changes because they made assumptions about what the problem was. They they brought in snacks. They um, went to flex hours. They they did all these kinds of things that you hear that millennials and Generation Z want, and they still had a morale problem. And so they finally asked their employees what was wrong. Do you know what was wrong? It was that the, for some reason the company, which it was a large company, but they had decided that for climate control within the office, they wanted the shades down. And people, there was, they had beautiful natural light and they just wanted the shades put up. They wanted natural light. They didn't like living underneath the fluorescence. They put the shades up, no problems. Wow. So ask. Wow. <laughs> Number one, ask okay. and listen. What if... The morale issue has to do with personnel. What if the morale issue doesn't have to do with subordinates, but has to do with a supervisor, a manager, or, God forbid, the CEO? My biggest problem with corporations, and I know I'm not alone, uh, again, another observation, ladies and gentlemen, is... What in the world did the CEO actually do to increase the bottom line of his company that garnered him a eight or nine digit bonus at the end of the year? My philosophy is it ain't him or her at the top. It's all of the people at the bottom. It's, for example, if you were to take Starbucks, I don't know what the guy at Starbucks makes who's at the top. 
All I know is it's the baristas. It's the people in the stores, in the coffee shops. They're the ones who make the bottom line increase, not the guy at the top. And sometimes it is the people in the middle. And I, I just sit here thinking, who is this greedy SOB that he thinks that he is that important that he, he should garner a huge thing? And that can tick people off like you would not believe. Uh, to where you hear this all the time from people who are disgruntled. Yeah, well, you know, I like my job, but you, oh, for example, you ever seen Undercover Boss? You seen that program? I, have, I don't watch it religiously, but yeah. You have seen it though. You're familiar with the premise. Yes. I love that because the the CEO of the company gets an earful and an eyeful. He does see the problems, but he also hears the the, the quote unquote gossip. He hears the rumors. He hears the 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 morale problems, uh, and so forth. So how how I mean, you, I, I suppose you can't get rid of the CEO. Uh, you could send him to a personal growth and development weekend you know, <laughs> to to open his eyes. But, you know, then you're kind of forcing the issue. It's like you said, they have to want help. Um, I have watched, um, for example, uh, Gordon Ramsay and uh, uh, Night Kitchen Nightmares, where he goes, people will call from a restaurant saying, we have a problem. And he comes in and then they give him all kinds of crap over his suggestions. Like, wait a minute, you called him. You know, so and they don't want to do what he's suggesting. So with that dynamic laid out uh, rather lengthy, help. It's your turn. How do you Sorry. fix? How do you how do you fix that? <laughs> I, that I issue that was the end of the question. Got it. Well, in in I will say the interesting thing about the CEO is that they do tend to set the tone for the company. Right. So an employee who had, as you pointed out, you know, if the baristas are happy at Starbucks and they're conveying that to the customers, absolutely. Yes, that contributes to the bottom line. But why is that barista happy at his at his or her job? Is it because they have a manager who is supportive of them, who then in, has somebody at corporate office who's supporter supportive of the franchise because there's a CEO who is you know, making is who's working with the head of HR to ensure that there are good benefits, that there's good vacation planning, that that employees are valued and taken care of, you know, that there's employee engagement, that there's opportunities for advancement. All of these things are coming from the C-suite and they all contribute to the employee's perception and feeling of value and of um, being needed and of enjoying the workplace. Having said that, do you have bad CEOs? Do you have bad managers? Absolutely. And that can cause that that can be like a cancer festering in an organization. It can really disrupt culture. And I'll tell you that I've worked in both company. I've worked at on both sides of that. I've worked at with fabulous CEOs who are very transparent in their communications, who are frequently doing town halls with employees who get suggestions and, and take them and say things like, that's an excellent suggestion. We're going to input that right away, you know, that kind of thing. And then I've worked with CEOs who are, you know, not not as employee friendly, you know, and who are, you know, tough, who are, you know, tough guys or, or gals or who are miserly or who are grumpy or whatever the situation may be. Um, and that reflects in the corporate culture. So to your point, if I'm in a company where I'm either the head of communications or I'm brought in as a consultant and I'm asked to measure the culture and help, you know, with help with culture management 
and the problem is the CEO or a leader of a division, then that's a tough conversation that I have to have. But it's up to that person to want to change and they mm -hmm. might not want to. Yeah. And in which case, I always fall back on this when I'm working with the employees directly and not with management, although I do tend to work more with senior management. You know, at that point, you know what you're signing up for. So I'll give you a perfect example in the entertainment industry. Netflix is an extremely popular company to work for. Everybody wants to go work for Netflix. They pay really well and they're do doing really well. It is an exciting place to be. They have a very specific corporate culture and they're very upfront about it. They give you, when you interview with that company, they give you a PowerPoint presentation that talks about their culture and it is a tough culture. It is not for, you know, if you want a warm and fuzzy family environment, they'll literally tell you, don't come to Netflix. That's not us. And, and that comes from the top, that comes from Reed Hastings and they're very transparent about it. So anyone who's in that company wants to be there and wants to be in that culture. So a, what someone else might consider dysfunctional, another person finds perfectly fine. When they lay it out up front, <coughs> that is to me the key because I've hired people uh, when I was the uh, operations manager for another radio station back in Phoenix and I would hire people and I would go through the list of job descriptions. And one of those items was to clean the bathrooms. See, we worked out at the transmitter site where you had a little area with a, a, a toaster oven and so forth where you could heat up your food or what have you because we did eight hour shifts. And the bathroom had to be cleaned because we didn't have a service. You know, we were out in the middle of nowhere in the farm fields uh, and so forth and so on. And so uh, some time would go by and I would say, I, I need you to clean the toilets. He says, well, you guys don't pay me enough to do that. He says, that has nothing to do with paying you enough. That's part of the job description or description when you were hired. Uh, so when it's put out front and then you come back later and say, uh, like your description of Netflix, uh, if you want warm and fuzzy. Oh, he said something or his attitude was, uh, do you remember the PowerPoint presentation? Uh, you can either stay or, you know, here's your severance package. Thank you so much for, for being with us. There's a big difference between that and the culture changing in, at a company. Uh, maybe a new manager comes in. They, you know, the old one goes off maybe to retire. Uh, by the way, the solution to that whole issue of... Uh, 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 people uh, living longer and staying in jobs longer and not retiring. That needs to end. We need to uh, revert to the philosophy from Logan's run. Everybody is out at 29. It's over. <laughs> it's just, we're done. Okay. No, I'm kidding. One of the aspects though, is you'd primarily, you deal with companies, you deal with businesses, right? The yeah. philosophy. I'm curious. Which one of these, and maybe it's something total, maybe there's a third that I haven't thought of. There are two basic philosophies in my mind for a business to even exist. And it doesn't matter what it is. A, it's the bottom line to make money. B, it is to provide the very best product or service that you can to your customers, to the general public, whoever your customer is, and so forth. And in my, in my estimation, if you're living by B, then A is going to take care of itself. Is there a third? And of those two, which one to you, of your perspective, if there is a third, please throw it out there, or fourth. Uh, otherwise, are either of those two philosophies more important than the other? 
say that we do have a third now, and it didn't exist prior till a few years ago, which is a benefit corporation. The company exists for the benefit of either the environment or to do a social good, basically. And a B Corp is an actual designation. It's not, um, you're still registered as an LLC or a C Corp or, mm-hmm. you know, something or an S Corp or something like that. But a benefit corp is something that um, you are assigned. Um, and what that means is that when the Wall Street is looking at your bottom line, your quarterly numbers, they're not judging you quarter by quarter. Right. They're not looking at you in the same way that they're looking at a, C, a publicly held C-Corp, um, that there's more leeway mm-hmm. for you to have lower margins for you to have, you know, so that you can do things that you're meant to do. So, for example, if you're a fashion company and you have been designated as a B-Corp, and I believe Patagonia might be a good example of that, you know, where everything they do, they try to do in a sustainable way, that they give back to the environment, that they, do, you know, that they donate corporate profits. To, so that's sort of thing. I would argue that, and to your point, yes, it's about the bottom line. As especially a publicly held company, the primary responsibility of the officers of a publicly held company is to work for the benefit of the shareholders. And the benefit of the shareholders is to make money. The best way to make money is to have happy employees who are, you know, engaged and good and and want to be doing their job who do their jobs well to the benefit of your product and your customers. Okay. And one of my, my philosophies, and I'm, I'm, I don't have my own business. I did once for one year. And then I went to file my taxes. And I owe the IRS $3,000. <laughs> and I shut down the business. I said, nah, until I have a CPA or an accountant who will take care of the taxes along the way, I'm not going to start another business. Uh, you know, I I, I, I I went through the Schedule C and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm in serious trouble here. <laughs> that was in 1994. I was 20, no, 34 years of age. And uh, it, it was like, uh, it was a big shock. I didn't realize that I had to fill out that form. And, uh, you know, itemizing did not help me at all. In any event, one of the philosophies that I have adopted in my uh, dealings with people because I I help people to produce audiobooks I help them produce music CDs or cassettes when I was younger and so forth all these different things my philosophy has always been in 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 terms of success I don't want to be successful I want to make you successful in turn that makes me successful so there is a, a somewhat of a self interest there but I have to perform so to speak. For the customer, for the client, because if I don't, and I had one <clears throat> that uh, I really uh, made a big mistake. I was using a brand new piece of software, and um, she came in and said, "This is what I want to do," and I let her tell me, and I did it, and I provided her, and she says, "I can't use this. This is terrible." And I said, "Okay, here's what we're gonna. I can't refund your money because I don't have it anymore, but what I can do is make it right." So I said, let's call everybody back in. We'll re-record everything, and then here's what I am going to do. So I finally took the reins of my company, and I said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. And she loved it. She actually came back for one more, another project, maybe two, you know. And I was able to, to at least take that bad taste out of her mouth, or at least it didn't taste as bad, so to speak. Whereas I know a lot of, <laughs> I know a lot of companies... Um, prior to COVID, prior to the economic shutdown, 
They didn't care. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, you gotta you gotta take care of that. You got that. Whereas everybody's in the same boat today. Everybody is, and there is that level of kindness and compassion. Do you think that that element will? Because it's so, it seems like it's going on for quite a long time, and they say that uh, to create to generate a habit and make it a part of your natural being, you got to do it for about thirty days. Well, we've been doing it for about forty, maybe fifty days so far. Do you think that element of kindness might permeate business, the business culture, more so than it already is? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um... <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you two answers and it's going to sound like I'm saying directly opposite things. The skeptical side of me says it would be wonderful, but no, that's not going to happen because I look back to situations like September 11th and after September 11th, this country really pulled together and it was one country and we were all one people and everybody was kind and compassionate and helpful to each other. And, you know, how many years has it been since then? We're almost 20 years now. And, we had fallen back into old habits. Mm -hmm. And then I look back at in 1918, this country experienced um, a massive pandemic with the Spanish flu. And surely back then we learned about hygiene and, you know, and isolating and, and closing down things. And, you know, over the hundred years that have, you know, all of that was gone. It, it was, it's as if this had never happened before, you know, we didn't know what to do and we were shocked and it ha this is unprecedented. Actually, it's not unprecedented. It has happened before. So we do have a built-in forgetter as human beings. And so I think that um, it, it would be nice, but I, I'm a little skeptical that it'll happen. Having said that, we have two younger generations right now, millennials and Gen Z, who put a lot of stock in um, looking at the companies that they work for and that they buy from and making sure that those companies um, share their morals, their ethics, and, and sometimes their politics, sometimes not. That doesn't always necessarily matter. It's not about conservative or liberal. You know, it's just um, I'll give you two examples of that. One, uh, I use this in my book, Culture Shock, actually. Nike is one of the most liberal companies in, in the United States. Um, Piper Jaffrey does an annual survey of teens. Nike is one of the, is the top athletic, or excuse me, clothing brand for teens in 2018. Chick-fil-A, one of the most conservative companies in the United States, and they were the number one fast food brand for teens in 2018. It's not about conservative or about liberal. It is about stating who you are, what you are, and what you stand for. So with Nike, you've got them doing, you know, ads about Colin, with Colin Kirkpatrick, who is known for starting the Take a Knee movement in the, in, in the NFL. And then with Chick-fil-A, you've got a company that is known for donating to anti-LGBTQ uh, uh, nonprofits, right? So both of them are out there about that and public. And then, you know, the, the consumer gets to make their own decision. And the consumer has. We have a problem here in Santa Barbara with Chick-fil-A in that and it's, all, it's more logistics than, than philosophy. And that is the fact that people love it so much. They get in the drive-thru and the drive-thru gets backed up and then it gets backs out onto the street. And it goes back two and three and four and five and six and eight and ten and twelve car lengths down the street on along the curb, which is illegal. And uh, there's a part of me that wishes that... Um, they would do away with the drive-through, although, you know, then you don't have enough parking places in there, although that might make room for more parking places. But by the same token, 
<clears throat> I wish there was a cop there to give tickets to every single person who chose to pull into the pull into the uh, far right side of the of the lane because it keeps people from using because there are only two lanes going uh, eastbound on the street and and there's a meridian over on the far left uh, dividing the uh, opposite lane of traffic and and it's it's a serious problem that is actually having to be faced by the city council uh, so, so from a logistics standpoint you are absolutely right people love it. Unfortunately, they're willing to break the law <laughs> to get it. And and I feel for Chick-fil-A from that standpoint that well, it's not our fault. We just make a superior product or a great product or one that people like. What's wrong with that? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because uh, I like Chick-fil-A. I love their <clears throat> their chicken tenders. Uh, but that's another story for another time. We are. <laughs> we are. I do think to your point, though, there is something about being a good corporate citizen that most companies are very, you know, you have these. You have departments of companies that are known, uh, I used to spearhead it as corporate social responsibility, right? So there is something to be said about working with, you know, the local um, authorities and to fix that problem. And I'm sure that, that they are. It's, it's a quality. I would call that a quality problem to have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they want to keep the drive through. Unfortunately, there's no place else in the city where because basically uh, drive throughs are have been zoned out of Santa Barbara. The only way that you can have a drive through is if that building had one prior to the changing of the ordinance. And it used to be a Burger King. I miss the Whopper, but that's another story for another time. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just one of those things that, that that's what you have. And, and boy, I tell you what, uh, if you have too many clients, hey, that's a great problem to have. Um, and uh, I, I have to say that uh, um, uh, for me, being able to, to provide the product or service, in my case, it's a service, which may, may develop into a product, i.e. a flash drive, a CD, a file exchange, or, you know, sending the file, so forth, um, <clears throat> you know, which is, which is something else in and of itself. But it's just, to me, fascinating, the issues. And there was a book, and that was actually an audio book written by... An Israeli author, and I want to say the book was called The Goal. Um, the basic premise was that the conversation or the, 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 the whole gist of the book was that um, the, the, the issue of making a company productive had to do with sometimes not getting rid of people, but moving people around. They used the example of um, a bunch of Boy Scouts on a hike. And there's one kid who has just got his pack is just loaded, and he's at the front of the line. And they want to move a little bit faster so they can cover more ground. So the scoutmaster said, well, let's put him in the middle. Well, now there's this huge gap between the front and the back of the line. So, well, let's, let's put him at the end. And now this kid is you know, he's way in the heck back behind the entire uh, line of kids. So finally, the scoutmaster says, let's all stop. Let's unload this kid's pack and divide it up amongst everybody, load the packs up, and let's go. And then everybody was traveling at the same rate. In other words, dealing with bottlenecks. And how do you fix a bottleneck? And that was, that was one example of a, of, a, of a way to fix a bottleneck was to redistribute the weight and, and then everybody is, is moving at the same pace and they can get to where they want to get to uh, in due time. One of the issues I've dealt with in business and in radio, one of the frustrations, but it's, it's built into the system, is with radio, 
when you come to the end of your day, your work isn't finished. And it's not that you didn't finish the work that you were supposed to finish. It's that that work is going to be there again tomorrow and the next day. In other words, there's no end. You know, it's unlike, uh, let's say Ford decided we're going to build 100,000 cars. There was, what was that one? I'm trying to remember the movie now with, um, with um, oh my gosh, Keaton, uh, where uh, they had to build X number of cars by the end of, a, uh, end of the month. And once you did that, your job was done. You've met the quota. And then you can move on to something else. But in radio and in television, I'm sure, in the media, there is no end. Um, so in business, there really is no end. It's a continuum. It just goes on and on and on. If you have a restaurant, you have a convenience store, you have a, a manufacturer, <clears throat> you know, a food producer, and so on and so forth. How do you... Um, because I know we, you know, it's been said that there's a beginning, a middle, and end to everything. But have you ever known of a business to uh, say we're going to be in business for ten years, do what we want to do, and then we're going to shut down and we're going to do something else? You don't know yet what it is, but that doesn't matter because we get ten years with this company. That's not built into the plan, is it? No, no. not really. It's not. You really. To your point that, yes, business goes on and on and it, perpe and it perpetuates itself. And, and once part of your business comes to the end of its life cycle, which happens all the time, mm -hmm. you know, it's human nature to continue to create and innovate. That's what we do as human beings. We constantly change, even though we resist it, which mm -hmm. is funny, a funny biological truth. It's like change is the one thing we're guaranteed to experience in life. And yet we are hardwired biologically to resist change. Oh, yeah. It's some huge cosmic joke. I, I actually, I have a second book called Communicating During a Crisis, Influencing Others When the Stakes Are High. Mm -hmm. And the the two books are with Culture Shock and, and Communicating During a Crisis. They're very similar in that I talk about you're in both situations, you're dealing with people who are resisting change and how do you navigate that? So um, it companies companies are entities companies comprise people they're made up but whoever's in that company in that moment is the personality of the company you know so certainly yes some companies go under because people aren't willing to change fast enough they don't adapt to to what's happening in in the world um and then move with it but at the same time most places are okay this line of business is coming to end let's create something new and what can we do with these factories it looks like we can transition to this so let's go that direction you know and it just goes on and on and on i mean that that is uh life you yeah. know that is yeah the perpetual motion of life with what is happening in the world today and and i have to say that the best example of that uh is seen out along the coastlines of uh, some uh, many countries today, especially the United States, both the East and the West Coast, you see, and I heard the number off of the West Coast, uh, off of California, uh, the number was somewhere in the neighborhood of three dozen oil tankers just sitting there. You have a supply. There's no demand. There's no demand because nobody needs it because, well, nobody's doing much. Uh, we're not we're not back to regular business. And I'm thinking <coughs> there's going to come a point at which they're going to have to leave it in the ground and stop pumping until they take care of the supply that's there, because you only have a finite number of oil tankers. And uh, I suppose if you wanted to, you could fill up a canyon. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not a good idea. But but by the same token, tell me, how many horse and buggy companies have you been dealing with here in the 21st century? How many rotor uh, how many <laughs> how many uh, how many rotary phone manufacturers have you uh, are you aware of in the country today or even around the world? Interestingly, none to to that specific question to mm-hmm. that specific question, but I will tell you that coming out of the television industry, I had a front row seat to watching companies like Netflix adapt very, you know, create a new dynamic and then traditional companies, like I'm thinking like, you know, Disney, CBS, Viacom, NBC, Universal and whatnot really come up slowly, more slowly Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of adapting to this, you know, going directly to the consumer as opposed to the traditional model on television or, you know, and on cable. It, it was fascinating to watch. And I was really, I was, I was, this is my other part of my career, but I was really um, fortunate to be on the digital side of the business. So I watched my colleagues who were in what I call, what we call the legacy side of the business, the older side of the business, really fight the change. And, and then I went to publishing and Condé Nast, right? Think about that, magazines today. You know, where do you, who buys a magazine? You do everything online for the most part. You know, there's a very specific segmentation of who's buying the magazine still versus who's reading it online. And Condé and Hearst and Meredith and all those guys were really smart because Condé was the first to transition a video. Like they recognize, holy cow, we target 18 to 24 year olds, 18 to 34 year olds. Our audience is watching content, not reading it. And they went into this, they had this huge video division that I was fortunate to be part of and to, to lead the comms efforts, communications efforts for. They're, people think of them as a traditional publisher. Content Nast is not a traditional publisher. They're a video company now. And it's it was really exciting to be part of it. So I've seen it done, I've seen it done slowly. I've seen it done, I've seen the pivot happen quickly. No matter what you're talking about, it's uncomfortable. When you're taking a traditional company and you're trying to really pivot and, and totally upend what they do, and you've got people who've been in that company for 20 years more more, that's a struggle. That is a culture issue. And it really takes um, a lot of work on behalf of management to, to communicate and to bring the employees along with the change. I want to talk about this real quick before we go to break. And that is um, <clears throat> the culture shock that exists in companies today, especially a lot of manufacturing companies today here in the United States due to the coronavirus who are, who have, who have been asked some of them didn't have to be asked. They just pivoted. They just made the shift to making the things that are needed right now. Right now, we do not need any more cars, okay? We don't need any more blenders. We don't need whatever it is. We need more respirators. We need more masks. We need more PPE and so on and so forth. Whatever it is that the first responders need that they are short of, we're going to provide it. Do you think... And again, going back to even what you said before about how we have this biological built-in forget-me-not concept in us, uh, do you think maybe that might help people to better accept change? Because they're going to change back. They're going to have to retool everything or put everything back to go back to building cars and, and, and uh, 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 blenders and widgets and so on and so forth uh, when, when this is all over. So what about what about your thoughts on on that kind of situation where and I look more at the companies who 
did it voluntarily without even being asked. They saw a need. And see, that to me, that is a company that is going to be around for a long time. I absolutely agree with you. One of the things that I look at as a communications consultant is one of the things I help with is brand reputation management. And that type of move that you're talking about is exactly, I mean, wasn't it wonderful to watch that? Uh, I have a friend who, um, her name's Paige Adams-Geller, she runs Paige Denim, and they transitioned to making masks, and they did it in conjunction. They're based in Los Angeles. They manufacture in Los Angeles, not in a different country. They manufacture here, and they transitioned to making masks, um, and, and they worked with the local, with the mayor, and with a local organization to ensure that the masks were appropriate. You know, that's the kind of goodwill that companies set that make me as a consumer, not just because Paige is my friend, like me as a consumer want to buy, you know, and want to frequent that company and help that company. I mean, I, there were companies that made perfume and whatnot and other, um, things that transitioned to making, uh, hand sanitizer, mm -hmm. which as a consumer, I couldn't find. And I was really stressed about that because I live in New York City. We were the center of this pandemic at one point. Yeah. So like that is endearing to me as a consumer. And that is exactly what I was talking about earlier with millennials and Gen Z. It is very important to them who, you know, that the companies they work for and the companies they buy from, that those companies are doing social good and that they share their values. And that is going to make that brand rep that that does a thousandfold for your brand reputation. I'll tell you it's what. It's unquantifiable. I'll tell you what. The distilleries that made that transition, they got my vote. <laughs> you can use it on your hands and you can drink it too. No, you cannot. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm Richard Dugan here with Joanna Massey. We are talking about culture shock and the five generations. We're going to break that down. I am so damn confused as to who gets what letter and why and what name and I thought I was, and then I wasn't part of the baby boomer generation. Who knows? Maybe after this break, we'll find out. Here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, I'm Richard Dugan, and we'll be right back. Tell me your stories, I'll do my best to understand you. And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's uh, Great to have you with us and to share this time with our very special guest who is telling us and talking to us a little bit about some things that are impacting us as uh, workers, as citizens, uh, as friends and family of workers and all of that good stuff. Uh, Joanne Massey, uh, the company that you, the consulting company that, that you run, uh, how long have you been running that? So the consulting company is my company. So it's called J.D. Massey Associates because that's my name, Joanna Dodd Massey. I like I, it. That's a mouthful. So I just call it J.D.M.A. <laughs> um, and J.D.M.A. is interesting. It, it's had an interesting life cycle. I started it back in 2012 when I was in between jobs and I would do consulting work. Um, and so it's been around for many years. Having said that, I occasionally, when a really interesting corporate job, a head of communications position comes up, I pop back into the corporate world because I can learn so much from being back in companies, especially ones that are innovating. But my last corporate job was at Condé Nast. I loved being there. And it, when it came time for me to leave again, I thought, you know, I'm really going to, I'm going to go back into the consulting world again. It's time. And so uh, that was in the very beginning of 2019. So we've been almost a year and a half now um, in this current iteration. What, uh, what was it? 
and it was more than just a couple of years ago, but what was it that made you think that you could help these businesses and companies to improve their morale, their culture, their bottom line, maybe all three, and then a bunch of other things as well? Uh, what was it that, uh, that was your catalyst, uh, the impetus? You know, I think that anybody, as you alluded to earlier, when you were talking about the business you started in 1994, anybody who thinks they want to run their own business is either a workaholic or clinically insane. So, uh, because it is a 24-7, 365, nonstop thing. Fortunately, I don't think I'm clinically insane, but I am definitely a workaholic. So, uh, the impetus for it really was I was I was exiting Condé Nast. I'd had several corporate jobs in a, in a row. I really felt that um, I, I mentioned earlier I have a PhD in psychology. I have 30 years in business, and I while I used the psychology as an officer of a company, as a business leader, as a boss, I really wasn't utilizing it to its full extent. And I, I just, I felt like it was time, you know, how do I merge these two things? And I don't know, do you call it kismet? Do you tell it, call it the right timing? I'm not sure. I basically had enough people saying to me in close proximity to each other, it's time. Why don't you go be a consultant again? Why are you trying to go, you know, don't, don't go back into corporate, be a consultant. So I thought, you know what, I've heard this message enough times. I'm just going to give it another try. And the beauty, I like to call myself the queen of pivoting. I've had to pivot so many times in my career. I figured, you know what, I'll do the consulting thing. It's going really well right now. If at some point it's not going well, or I decide I want back into corporate, I will go back into corporate. But for now, I'm really loving book writing, being a corporate speaker, and and doing consulting for, for executive teams. What is the one thing that you love about it the most? Wow, just one thing. Um <laughs> I love the freedom. I really do. I like, um, you know, I'm, I'm still working 24 seven and I always have, whether I'm in a corporation, a publicly held company or on my own, but I really love the freedom that I get to get up every day. And I, if I want to work on this project and write this book, you know, my book communicating during crisis, I wrote that in six weeks and, and got it published quickly. Um, you know, the culture shock book, I might not have been able to work on that if I had been ahead of communications and very, you know, focused on. So I, and the other thing I love, I know you said one thing, I'm really sorry, but it's I okay. love the, besides the freedom, I love the, um, the diversity of the work I get to do. When I go in and speak to a corporation as a corporate speaker or do a training of some sort, you know, I'm going into all kinds of different companies and I'm learning about those companies and I get to experience whether you're a manufacturer, whether you're a clothing designer, whether you're a media company, it's just, it's an, or a technology company. Like it's great. It's, it's really exhilarating. Well, I know that uh, one of the things that my father, I consider him a, a pretty wise guy. Sometimes he is a wise guy, but uh, he told me very early on, probably back in the seventies, early eighties, when I was looking for work, trying to find my niche, my purpose in life. Uh, he said, uh, <clears throat> You know, Richard, be sure that you find a job you love to do because you're going to be doing it for a long time. And um, I, I certainly took that to heart because he said, because I don't want you to get stuck like me. Now, I never considered him to be stuck because in the 70s, he went back 
to school, went to junior college, got his computer programming job, got his, I'm sorry, he got a, uh, his computer programming certification. That was back when they used uh, fanfold paper and punch cards. And we had a lot of drawing paper to work with, too, let me tell you. <clears throat> it wasn't just zeros and ones. Um, and so I did that, but I didn't do it on purpose. That was the very interesting thing. I, I just, it just happened. It just, um, I, I was going to Phoenix College, the same college he went to, to get his computer programming. And uh, I was working, uh, doing work study. <clears throat> and I was working in the audiovisual department. And I was also connected with one of the counselors there. And he told me about this radio reading service for the blind and visually impaired that was looking for people. Because they were just starting up. And I was one of their original board ops, as they called them back then. They're producers today. That's my, that's my term. And um, I got my start uh, August 29th of uh, 1979 in this business. And I loved listening to radio and all that good stuff. But the thing that really struck me was, at one level, how easy it was. And I've said this many times, and I'm curious as to your perspective on this from, from your experience. I have always felt... In spite of the fact that one year I was laid off from four jobs, I've been through a divorce. <laughs> um, we've all been through stuff, right? I still believe that I have always been in the right place at the right time. So I'm curious about your life experience, your work experience for that matter, and that philosophy and if that's a philosophy you are able to pass on to other people, that my feeling is there's no wasted time. No matter what you're doing, somehow something is going to be used from that experience. I worked in a warehouse filled with light bulbs, and I thought, what the hell does this have to do with radio? Well, you know, I, I'm not going to go into detail as to the things that I gleaned from it that I use today, but the, the reality is it wasn't wasted time. Talk to us about that concept of being in the right place at the right time, even if you don't feel like you're in the right place. As you were asking that question, what popped into my mind was an image from the Karate Kid. Do you remember the wax on, oh, wax yeah, off? Yeah. <laughs> and he had no idea why he was waxing that darn car. He couldn't understand it until he got to the real teaching. And, you know, the whole thing came together. And I, for me, that's, that explains my life perfectly. It's sort of, how did I end up in this job? Or why am I here? Or, you know, and then all of a sudden at the next job or two jobs later, that, that experience comes into play. And I can really look back now as a consultant. And when I went to get a degree in psychology, I did it in 2008 during the Great Recession. And the reason I did it was because, frankly, I got downsized out of one of my corporate jobs. And I, as a, at the time, I was senior vice president level. I couldn't get back in. And, and an executive recruiter said to me, you're not going to get a job for like four or five years. And you have to do something because you're going to go back into the marketplace when this economy cleans up and you're going to have done nothing. So she said, go back to school. So I went and got this psychology degree and it turned into a PhD in psychology because the recession lasted a long time. But 
I can tell you that while I was getting that degree, I was thinking, am I pivoting here? Am I about to become a therapist? I don't want to be a therapist. I really like being in business. What's going on here? I'm enjoying this, but I don't know why I'm doing it. And then when I got back into business and I saw how the psychology made me a better manager and a better leader, and I didn't need to use it. And now I'm writing books. And the fact that I'm a PhD in psychology actually comes into my books all the time because I write in a very relatable, friendly way, but I'm able to explain people and why they react certain ways, especially under stress. Like it all comes together and I can look back at it and go, oh, now I get it, mm -hmm. right? Hindsight is 2020. Yeah. So what it, what really my, what that taught me was at the time that I'm going through something, if I fight it, if I struggle against it, if I'm questioning why, I really need to let go. Because why can't be known in that moment, but I'm pretty much guaranteed it will be at some point known. And I just need to wait for it. Oh, Mr. Miyagi really was just looking for a free car, uh, wax job. That's really what he was looking for. Didn't care about the <laughs> other stuff. It was just a free wax job. Anyway, um, you know, it, and it's one of those aspects of the, the philosophy that I... I try to live by as best I can about uh, my success. Uh, that my success is dependent on the, su the success of others. Um, and I find it, I found it real interesting. Oh, it must have been, oh, I wish I could remember how many years ago, maybe a decade or more. When, and I remember seeing the piece, the, the, the sound bites in the, in the news of uh, people, and I think it was in Texas. Uh, because uh, there was this attitude going around that um, uh, if it weren't for this and that and the other thing, uh, you wouldn't even be there. And people were taking the position that I did this all myself. They were entrepreneurs and they had their own little businesses. And I did this myself. And I'm sitting here going, no, you didn't. I personally have thousands of people who are responsible for why I am here right now with you today doing what I am doing. I did not do this on my, on my own. I certainly, I took the initiative, but without people like the late, uh, um, uh, Margaret Pekarik, who encouraged me back in 1980, 81 to go to Toastmasters and and have that experience of learning how to speak and remove the ahs and the ums and get to the point as much as possible. Uh, I, I have that. I have her to thank for that. I have engineers who have taught me things that I never would have learned otherwise about how to fix certain things. I, I know my limits, but I also know some of the things I can do. I know how to build computers from the ground up. I get the case, I get the motherboard, I get the peripherals, I start slapping it together, I get the operating system, and away we go. I love doing that because it's a working model, and I used to build models. On and on and on. So for someone to say, I did this all myself, you're a liar. You're, 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 I shouldn't say you're a liar. You are deceiving yourself. And you are not giving, you are not being, and this is the other thing about humility. I love the fact that the universe Every once in a while, when I get a little too big for my britches, gives me my comeuppance and reminds me that I'm not alone. I didn't do it all myself. Yeah, you're good at what you do. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but don't blow it out of, of proportion to the big picture, that we're all here together. Now, 
What about that aspect? Do you work with the employees of corporations or just the upper end? I work with both, but I do tend to work with the um, C-suite more uh, since they're the ones hiring me and the ones that are in charge of trying to, you know, change the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say that, for example, when I go in and give a corporate talk, whether I'm talking to 20 people, 100 people or 1,000 people, I do like to incorporate in several of the messages you just mentioned. I really love that concept of the rising tide lifts all boats, right? You know, we, as people, we tend to look at something as a piece of pie, Mm -hmm. right? And if somebody gets a piece of my pie, that means there's less pie for me. No, that's not true. The pie can expand, right? Just like the tide Mm -hmm. brings the boats up, right? So it's that shift in perception that I really like to focus on. And you said something that I just love. And it reminded me, I was in, I attended an executive education program at Harvard. And so I'm in the room with all of these, you know, CEO, CFO women. It was all women. It was a, a it was a a program for women. And we're in there and the teacher, the professor says to us, what is the secret? You know, what is responsible for your success? Is it you or is it luck? And everyone in the room was like 90% me, 10% luck, 50-50, you know, 70-30, like whatever they were saying. And it came to me and they and she said, Joanna, what is it? And I said, it's 100% luck. I had nothing to do with it. I would have, you would have thought I almost got booed out of the room. I mean, <laughs> the, the gasps were tremendous. But, and I, I say this in my books, um, especially in Culture Shock, I end, I, it's towards the end of the book. Because there are some there's a lot of philosophical writing in the books. Um, they're they're very like business book slash self help. But my point is that friends that I had, I had no zero responsibility in that, you know? And so, yes, I have some wants and some desires, but I didn't, you know, I did what I needed to do to get into college, but I didn't get to go to the college I wanted to go to, but I'll tell you what, I ended up in the undergraduate program that was absolutely best for me. I didn't know that, but that was luck, right? Yeah. You know, I, I ended up my job, my first job at CBS, which was my first job in the entertainment industry. That was luck. I was at a football game. And, and ran into an alumni who worked there. And she said, we're looking for somebody. Do you want to interview? Right? So, like, the whole thing to me is about, you know, good fortune and being in the right place in the right time, as you said. Yeah. Well, I have felt that way pretty much most of my life. Um, and uh, I, I feel fortunate in that respect. Uh, and I've also 
done my best as a manager. I never, I've never been in the C-suite. I'm, I'm waiting for my turn. Um, but one of the things, you use the example of the pie and this, you know, someone who takes my piece, well, the pie can expand. I look at it this way. I want to give people pieces of my pie because it means that as soon as that pie plate is empty, I get to move on to another pie, another flavor, another thing to do. I do not want to hold on to the tools. I want to replicate them and pass them on so that the other people can learn what I've learned and come forward. But then I get to go off and do new things. Whereas I have seen so many people. They, they, there's a trainee, you got someone who's, you're going to be training and, and they will just train them to the minimal amount. And it's like, are you kidding? So you want to be doing this. You want to be putting the sixth bolt on the, uh, uh, on the left rear axle of that car for the rest of your life. That's all you want to do from now until the day you die. Why don't you teach someone else how to do that? So you can move on to something else. To another part, maybe you get, maybe you'll move up to driving the cars off of the assembly line out in the parking lot. Maybe you'll even move into, who knows? Maybe because you built them, you know how they're built. You'd be a great salesman, telling people the quality of workmanship. Because I used to be on the line. Or maybe you want to do something totally different. And that's something I want to bring up real quick here because we are uh, getting close on time. But your perspective, we had, um, we've had. Three events here in the 21st century. Uh, the first one I consider more of a local event only because of where it happened. But it, it did. There was an impact nationally. The second one was very much national. And the third uh, was global. And I should say is global. They are 9-11, 2008, 9 the economic downturn, they call it the Great Recession, and here we are, COVID virus. Talk to me about your perspective as a consultant to business, but to our listeners, about the opportunity, the concept of seeing opportunity in the midst of the alleged, again, another observation, chaos. I think that change, by definition, change brings opportunity. And I had a wonderful boss that I've worked for several times, a woman named Dawn Oshroff. And Dawn taught me something, which is, Joanna, when you see change coming, jump. It is a runaway train. And you want to jump on that train and be in the driver's seat. Do not wait to jump on the back of the train to get on the caboose because you will get dragged through it. So I think that the companies that embrace change, that that take advantage of opportunities that can move quickly, that are agile, are really well positioned to maintain their brand and to continue on. And I would say that um, I've seen I've seen incredible um, shifts happen during this current pandemic and, and in, in, uh, in past ones, or excuse me, in the past situations you brought up as well. But just to give you an example, I've watched companies that have, uh, I know a startup actually, that was very focused on providing back end business to 
um, beauty industry companies. Okay, that's a very specific line of business. And I, I mentor um, female entrepreneurs and this entrepreneur, this young woman entrepreneur called me and she had pivoted her business literally overnight. She had found a very smart way to secure PPP loans, which are hard to come by for her clientele. And she had expanded out of this, you know, beauty industry set category into now being a connector and providing a service for any small business in the country to connect them with banking and, and you know, debt opportunity. That was a incredibly quick, fast acting pivot um, that helped her business and broadened it quite impressively. So, you know, where there is opportunity when you jump quickly, um, it, it can pay dividends. And I, and I would also say that if you jump quickly and it turns out not to be paying dividends, it's that old adage, fail fast, right? If you make that jump and it doesn't work, get out then, but give it a try. Yeah. You've got, in one sense, you've got nothing to lose, you know, Absolutely not. uh, it's, it, to me, it's extraordinary. It really is, uh, the possibilities that exist. And I think that for a lot of folks, this is where I'm, I'm, I can't quite grasp this concept that I keep hearing in regards to what they're saying about the number of businesses that are going to fail. You follow me? That they're saying that, I don't know, the restaurant industry, for example, I'm going, how in the world can they fail uh, it doesn't make any sense. They, they've just been shut down for a period of time. Uh, they're going to come back. Uh, does, that sh- does that show the lack of resilience, of creativity, of a number of things that, uh, that these business owners don't seem to grasp yet? And again, I'm, I'm not minimizing their concern. Because I don't know what I would do necessarily. I mean, certainly if, if the radio station were shut down due to lack of advertisers or programmers paying their, their bills, I'd certainly first thing would be file on for unemployment. And then, of course, I'd start looking for another job, even if it wasn't in radio. Um, talk to us a little bit about the adversity of business. Uh, let's say in that regard. I mean, 2008, we did that same thing. Uh, and locally in New York City in 2001, September, they had to do the same kind of thing. Uh, so it's kind of like it's it's actually grown from 2001 to 8 to 2020. It's gone uh, locally, nationally, and now uh, 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 covering the globe. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about that concept. I think there's a business reality there, especially in this situation. You know, let's go back to 2008 really quickly. There are certainly companies and restaurants. You've mentioned restaurants, but there are small businesses and and large businesses that went out of business and there was nothing they could do about it. You know, especially consumer staples, which are things that you always have to buy, something like toilet paper or milk or something like that. You know, those companies are pretty can survive a recession. But a company that's considered a luxury. And by the way, I'm talking about everything from going to the movies to going out to eat to flying mm-hmm. and traveling, you know, to buying, you know, clothing that, you, you know, new clothing, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, these are these are areas that will suffer during recession. And we did see we did lose some companies. But then you look at it and 12 years later, if you're looking at 2008 to 2020, right before this happened, this we were thriving. 
And those people had pivoted and they had maybe started new lines of businesses or gotten into new businesses. And some of those places are gone forever, but they've become different things, whatever the case may be. I do think there is a financial reality to this pandemic that is quite different than a recession, which is that you've got now a situation where we're going to be able to, where we want to be able to go back to normal life, but normal life looks like continuing to social distance for quite some time. So opening in some cities, especially New York City, maybe in Los Angeles and other places that are hard hit, is going to look like I can only fill my restaurant by 50%. I can only fill my theater on Broadway with 50% capacity. I can only fill my airplane with 50% capacity. I have to take out the middle seats. Now, some of us might be like, yes, thank you. The restaurant was too crowded. The theater seats were too uncomfortable. And I hated the middle seat on the airplane. But as a business owner with a thin margin, and all three of those industries I just mentioned have very thin profit margins, you cannot afford to operate at 50% capacity. It's not possible. A theater, a show on, on Broadway, if it starts to run at 80% capacity, it shuts down. And we're asking them to open and intentionally only seat 50% of the house. So what happens there? In order for them to make money and be able to do it, they're going to have to raise ticket prices. In order to raise ticket prices, when you've got a, a group, you know, we're talking about 20% of the people out of work, there's less people to buy those tickets. There's, you know, we've all taken an economic hit from the richest of the rich to the, to the you know, people who are on food stamps. Everybody is, is, has taken an economic hit. Even the wealthy might not want to spend that money right now. So can you really get them into the theater? And let's not even, that doesn't even take into account the people who don't want to go out yet, who probably won't want to go out till the fall or even later. Mm. So it's an interesting time. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's going to be, I'm, it's, I'm kind of excited to be alive to get to see it. It, it also uh, is going to show, and in the restaurant industry, especially out here in, uh, on the West Coast, Santa Barbara particularly, which is where I live, they have gotten creative. It's not a new idea, but it certainly is an idea that has absolutely cut on and caught on. And that is either uh, curbside non-contact or uh, takeout, pick up and takeout, uh, or delivery of uh, food from restaurants. Now, I've heard it said that uh, back when everything was normal and you could go into the restaurant to eat or so forth, that takeout and pickup and all of that stuff was 10% of their income, and there's no way a restaurant could survive. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Okay. I get that it was 10%. Now it's 100%, and there are a lot of people who are doing it. They will draw. I've, I've been to Chili's twice and picked up food. Okay. I've been to different restaurants and I've picked up the food, which was fine. So if that's how it's happening, then the economic model has to change. And that's one of the things that we talk about here on the program, and that is looking for those new ways of living. This situation is going to show us we have to find those new ways of living. The economic model that we've been living under no longer works. It will not work. It actually was flawed from the get-go because the fact is, that if you have employees who are making $10 an hour and uh, they're there for a year or two years, and I realize that the whole concept of staying at a company for 30 or 40 years is not quite the same, but, you know, it's kind of like you get comfortable, you like the culture, <laughs> as we say, uh, and you want to stay there, then each year or two you want to get a little bump up in, in salary. So your salary goes up. Well, how is the employer going to pay you more 
unless he raises his prices. So he raises his prices. People still come in and buy. And a couple of years later, you're still there. You want a little bump up. He gives it to you. Now the prices of products have to, or service has to go up. Customers are still paying. A couple of years later, same scenario. A couple of years more, a couple of years more. That can't go on. It's unsustainable. Um, unless you leave and go work somewhere else. But then you're going to want to find a job that was paying you at least what you were making. Where you, you know, and it's not likely, well, hopefully maybe you can. Maybe you have an education, a degree, and all those kinds of things. Of course, you've got your student debt probably and all that kind of stuff. So to me, the whole economic model is flawed from the get-go. It can't sustain itself. We, and I don't know what the answer is. All I know is from what I have seen, when I was working, I worked for 15 years at that radio station that I was telling you about, that I was the operations manager of. I started in 1980 at $3.65 an hour, then minimum wage. All right. Now, I was single, living on my own. When I left, 15 years later, I was now married I was making a whopping $7.35 an hour. Barely double what I was making when I started 15 years earlier. Because the company was not interested in keeping our salaries paced with whatever it was that you're supposed to keep pace with. And so it, it, it gets people frustrated. And so they start pilfering from the company. Motorola in 1989, I heard this story on ABC, laid off a thousand people. They let them go because they'd done an audit and there was a million dollars worth of materials missing. Now, whether those thousand people were the ones taking the materials or not, who knows? But they, caught, they got caught up in the net. So these are some dynamics of our economy uh, that they've got to change, you know, and unless the morale at Motorola changes, you know, and it did, I'm sure, to some degree, uh, or what the morale of management changes to where I see value in what you do and what you provide. I'm going to give you a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I just I don't see that things will change, but they are going to. I, I, there is there is no choice anymore. It's going to change. Is, is is your perspective that way? Even though you don't have the answer, I don't have the answer, but we know it's going to change. It has to. I think we saw something really interesting after two thousand and eight. Um, you know, as as the economy got better, and and in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, as as the you know the media were reporting that we're in the best economy ever, and this is a boon economy, and where the bubble is huge, and now we've exceeded it. You know, where this is the longest run the economy's ever had, and really, what you were seeing, which wasn't really being reported on, was that middle American, you know, like middle income, were getting squeezed. And why were they getting squeezed? Because the the companies might have been doing better, but they were doing what's called stock buybacks, right? Which is they were buying their own stock back and keeping it and giving it to employees as bonus stuff, mm -hmm. but they weren't really investing in salary and in um, actual cash, right, to give to employees. So the, it wasn't translating down to the lower ranks. Yeah. So to your point about, you know, you're, you're saying, yes, if I'm at a company, I get an increase, but those annual increases, which in the 1980s and 90s were like 10%, these days they're 2%. Yeah. So the growth isn't as big, number one. But 
Um, number two, I think, yeah, you, what you see is a lot of companies that will, you know, suddenly realize, hey, this area that we used to think had to grow now needs to shrink. We don't need it as much because we have to focus our attention somewhere else. And mm -hmm. that's where you see the massive layoffs on the divisional level, yeah. um, you know, and, and those types of things. So I, I think that companies are constantly adjusting because you're absolutely right. I can only rise. You know, we work we live in a world of supply and demand. Right. That means that I can charge as much as you're willing to pay. But once I get over that amount and you're not willing to pay it anymore, I got to bring it down and then I've got to adjust my business practice. But frankly, that's the way um, that's the way that uh, capitalism works. And mm. that's the system we've been operating under for forever. Mm -hmm. The other element, too, is um, <clears throat> that aspect of um uh, keeping thoughts in your head when you're trying to articulate them out your mouth. And uh, I seem to have lost what I was going to say. But what I am going to say is, Joanna, Joanna, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program and being with us. Uh, I must not have paid the memory bill. Uh, and so I'm in serious trouble. Be that as it may, it's been great talking with you about culture shock. I did want to get into the five generations, but I think we'll save that for another time. I would love to have you back, especially as things continue to change and transform uh, economically uh, in this country in particular. But now we're talking about a, a global situation. And I, I'm hearing a lot of criticism from people saying, we should never have done this. And I'm sitting here going... It's too late. We did it. Okay? This is where we are. Deal with it. Stop complaining. Stop blaming. And get to the business of doing what needs to be done. And um, you are doing that by sharing with us these ideas, especially in regards to that other book you were talking about. What was it? Uh, Communication in a Crisis? It's called Communicating During a Crisis. During I a crisis. actually just published it on Amazon uh, this, this past week. So, yeah, it's a it's a brief book. It's it's a one hour read. Very easy read. What is your very uh, helpful these days. And, and your website for people who want to find out more about you and the work that you are doing happens to be uh, Joanne. And I'm going to no, it is J.D. Um, Main C dot com. Actually, it's the initials of the company. I, it's JDMA Inc. I N C. Sorry, so JDMA Inc.com. And you are the you are not the first person to say JD Main C, and it makes me think I have to think about my URL. <laughs> well, uh, nonetheless, it's JDMA Inc.com. INC.com. We will be linked to your website, uh, Joanna, so people can get more information and talk about. Uh, uh, all of different aspects of, of what it's going to take to move forward in this world today. And we thank you so much for being a part of Tell Me Your Story. Should you ever find yourself out here on the West Coast, once we're able to move around, uh, we'd love to have you in studio to continue the conversation. And I also have three final questions for you, but I want to remind our listeners about the podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the different outlets that are available to you. We certainly hope that you'll check them out. And if you can support, support what we're doing, you like the work that we are doing here and you want to be a part of it, uh, there are PayPal and Patreon accounts on the missions page as well as the homepage of richarddugan.com. So my uh, first of three questions is, who is Joanna Dodd-Massey? The queen of pivoting. <laughs> oh, I like it. I don't think I've ever had a queen. Oh, we've had one other queen on the program. We've had one other queen. Who was that? <laughs> um, she, 
<laughs> you know what? I once again I did not pay the memory bill, so I'm not really <laughs> exactly what it was, and I should. Second question is, what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I really like sharing information with people. I think that when we understand ourselves and we understand others, we work better together. And I just think there is a better way to do what we're doing. And so I hope that by writing these books that are really accessible and relatable and by going on shows like this and by going into companies and talking to leadership and to employees, that I help people understand human beings, the human condition, understand each other so that we go, basically so we can all play better in the sandbox together. There you go. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Wow. It's changed so many different times, but I would say that my life's purpose is to simply be, you know, to, to, to go with the flow and to allow it to be and to hopefully not create a lot of friction in doing that, you know, but to um, help create and innovate and change and be a change agent in the world. Joanna, once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program, and we will be linked to your website. And we do look forward to having you back again to talk more about this, uh, especially as uh, things are constantly in flux, not just daily, almost hourly. Uh, this has really been uh, a great fun. And I want to thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true here in 2020, the year of perfect vision. Please spend some time. Go within. Seek out your intuition. Seek out your guidance. Seek out the peace and the calm. It's all there within you. And... Uh, you're not going to go wrong. You've got absolutely nothing to lose. Until our next broadcast podcast, or BP, I'm Richard Dugan. Love to lull.